When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One note to listeners before today's episode. As we were recording this show, news was coming in about a shooter at YouTube's headquarters in San Bruno, with several people reportedly hurt. We didn't have further details at the time of recording, but we're thinking of everyone there and sending our thoughts to those affected. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Arimus. Welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, April 3rd. On today's show, we'll discuss the drama over the largest television station owner in the country, Sinclair Broadcasting, and the outrage that's boiled over the past weekend over the media conglomerate's demands that its anchors read a script that echoes Trumpian talking points. We'll also unpack Trump's beef about Jeff Bezos owning what he calls hashtag Amazon Washington Post and music streaming site Spotify went public this week in a totally new kind of way. We'll look at its direct public listing and what it means for the company's future. Later, we'll be joined by Al Lindsay, vice president of Alexa Engine Software at Amazon. We'll talk to Al about exactly how Alexa works, what privacy concerns it raises, and why it started scaring the bejesus out of people a few weeks ago by emitting peals of creepy laughter for no apparent reason. And we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, our picks for the best on the web this week. All right, April, where are you coming to us from this week? I am coming from New Orleans, which is a place that I've always kind of considered a second home, uh, visiting some very close friends out here. So doing the podcast from here. You're in California. As usual. And before we jump into the news, a little house business today. We're going to start answering listener mail. So that means we want to hear from you out there. Maybe you have a question about some of the big tech stories we cover, like the various Russian hacking scandals or the developing Cambridge Analytica Facebook story. Or if you have questions about our reporting or stories you think we might be missing, you can email us at ifthen at slate.com. We'll be answering your questions on the show starting very soon. Again, email us at ifthen at slate.com to have your question or comment potentially featured on the show. And a shout out to one of our listeners. I just learned that the lead guitarist of one of my favorite bands growing up, uh, Lush, is uh, a listener of our podcast. So <laughs> uh, please That's let awesome. us know who you are. We are excited to meet you. And we're so glad that uh, you are taking the time to listen to us talk about this ever exciting industry. Yeah. Sometimes when we do this podcast, it feels like we're talking to the void. And then you hear from somebody who you really admire who listens. And it's really amazing and gratifying. So yeah, come out of the woodwork. But let's get into the news. April, you've been following the story of what Sinclair Broadcasting has been requiring its local TV anchors to do. Tell us what's going on there and why it matters. 
Well, at the beginning of last month, CNN ran a story detailing how news anchors at the Sinclair-owned television stations across the country were asked to read a script that read like Trump's Twitter feed, like it came straight out of Trump's Twitter feed. It, it said things like biased and false stories are extremely bad for democracy. And uh, basically, news anchors across the country were asked to read this, and, and that includes anchors on Fox affiliates or NBC affiliates or CBS affiliates. These are all stations that Sinclair owns. Well, over the weekend, Deadspin made a supercut of a couple dozen or so of the television stations across the country that were reading the same script in unison. The sharing of biased and false news has become all too common on social media. More alarming, some media outlets publish the same fake stories without checking facts first. The sharing of biased and false, false news has, has become, become all too common, common on, on social, social media. media. More alarming, some media. It was totally dystopian because here we have a vocal conservative owner of the largest television empire in the country, Sinclair Broadcasting, which owns 173 stations now, mandating its anchors read a script that echoes right-wing talking points. And this just comes as Sinclair is waiting for federal approval to acquire Tribune Media, um, which is a company that owns over 50 local television stations. And if that's approved, Sinclair will have about 215 television stations and reach uh, about 72% of America's TV audience. That will make it, uh, a, well, it still is, but uh, continuing to be the, the largest uh, you know, television owner in the country. So if you just heard that clip being read by the news anchor on your local TV station, it's not entirely clear that you would know these are Trump talking points, right? I mean, it just sounds like they're on there defending their journalistic credibility and their concern for facts. And you probably wouldn't know that they were actually ordered to read that by their corporate owners, right? So certainly Sinclair Broadcasting is depending on the kind of integrity that's been built up from these local broadcasters to give clout to this you know, mandated script that they're being asked to read. Um, and it's also worth noting that, you know, uh, local television news does have more viewers than uh, cable news does. And a lot of people who watch local television news, you know, probably are not scrolling Twitter or, or you know, reading the stories in the newspapers to uh, to really get the context on what they're hearing here. They're just taking it for for what it is. Obviously, there are laws about media ownership that have been relaxed over time. Is that what's allowing Sinclair to extend its reach to sort of unprecedented levels across the country? In November, uh, the chairman of the FCC, Ajit Pai, did pass a law that further relaxes media ownership rules. Uh, there was a rule on the books that said you can't own more than one of the top four television stations in a single market. And uh, he relaxed that so that in some markets you can own up to two. Uh, Sinclair definitely probably hopes to take advantage of, of that rule uh, with the consolidation that they are proposing or the merger that they are proposing. The, the relaxation of media ownership rules, you know, is, is definitely uh, troublesome because the spirit of those rules is that if you have uh, too much concentration of ownership uh, in a single market, then people are not going to really be getting their information needs served, right? Because you'll change the channel and you'll think that you're going to get a different perspective and it might look different. It might have different anchors. There might be a different backdrop, but it's still owned by the same person. And the the point there is to not have the illusion of variety, but to actually have uh, different viewpoints. And and that's because if, if one person, you know, controls all the information systems, the newspaper, the television, the radio in a single market, then they control a lot of what people know. 
And, uh, and, and it, we kind of need that in order to, to be able to get the information we need to, to meaningfully vote. I mean, that's kind of the spirit of uh, a lot of these media ownership laws or limits that have been put in place on how many stations a single owner can have in a market. That's very different than uh, internet type of regulation because those laws are also premised on the fact that the government can regulate these stations because they're using public airwaves, which is a public good. Yeah. And for me, as someone who covers Facebook and its influence on the media, you know, I'm always calling for them to acknowledge that they should have some of the responsibilities that media companies take on in terms of the, you know, in terms of making sure that their products better inform people, uh, making sure that they that they aren't you know, full of hate speech and propaganda and all that sort of thing. But this sounds a bit of a cautionary note for me. I mean, we, if we want Facebook to act like a more, more like a media company in some ways, we certainly don't want it to act like this kind of media company where it's pushing an ideological agenda down everybody's throats without, without uh, owning up to it. I think more so the the thing to to draw on with this is that there have been laws requiring media companies act in the interest of the public in the past. Those laws, like I said, were dependent on those media companies using public airwaves and a public good. And it's going to be very, very hard to create any uh, anything that uh, is a corollary to the Internet uh, because they're not using any sort of public infrastructure in order to get uh, to get voices out there. And besides, I don't think that that this necessarily ties into analogy because um, those public interest obligations have long been abandoned or deregulated away. Um, it's more so that, that that Facebook, when we talk about it acting like a media company, I think what we're referring to, or it's like taking you know, the responsibility that it should as a media company is owning the editorial decisions that it makes. Um, it is important, though, to remember that it's not a foreign concept in U.S. media policy to require uh, you know, large distributors or curators of news to act in the interest of the public. Um, I just don't think that there's really legal rationale necessarily in the same way there is with using a public good like the airwaves uh, to, to, to regulate Facebook based on. All right. And now Trump has jumped into the fray. What happened there with Trump and Sinclair this week? Sure. Um, so Trump did tweet in support of Sinclair on Monday. He said that S Sinclair is just far superior to CNN and fake NBC and kind of trying to to cool a lot of the uh, criticism around Sinclair forcing its anchors to read a script across all the stations. Yeah, I'm sure Trump defending Sinclair will really cool the uh, the progressive critics who are angry about it. Again, it, 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 yeah, it probably just fires them up, but I don't think that uh, that necessarily people who who heard this or that watched these local Sinclair stations uh, will know that Trump, uh, you know, tweeted in support of Sinclair and against CNN again. Um, you know, uh, Trump does seem okay with the conservative media giant here really flexing its power to influence editorial decisions on its stations. At the same time, um, he's not okay with Jeff Bezos doing that, even though, uh, to be absolutely clear, uh, Jeff Bezos doesn't do that, according to the Washington Post. Uh, Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post and Amazon. Amazon does not own the Washington Post, <laughs> as, uh, as Trump seems to insinuate. Um, but uh, Trump has uh, tweeted at least four times in the past week uh, at, uh, you know, Bezos' Bezos's Amazon or Bezos' relationship to the Washington Post. And, you know, this has really been uh, quite a, a roller coaster to watch Trump just continuously go off on whether it's Amazon or the Washington Post. Um, but then to, to see him, you know, tacking on excuses for uh, for Sinclair, you know, clearly exercising, um, you know, influence over editorial decisions across its properties. 
Yes, I'm, I'm very surprised and shocked to see a double standard there on Trump's part. But, but yes. the substance of his claim seems to be that Amazon is somehow taking advantage of the U.S. Postal Service. Is there any, is there any validity to that, regardless of, of whether it's an honest argument coming from, from this president? Uh, not really. It's not valid um, because uh, many kind of giant bulk shippers like Amazon have discount deals with USPS. Um, you know, it's been reported by multiple publications that people close to Trump um, have explained to him that, uh, you know, Amazon is not getting a free ride and that Amazon actually makes a lot of money for the Postal Service. But he seems really dead set on pushing this narrative. Um, and, you know, it may, it may come from a distaste for The Washington Post. Uh, it may uh, it may come from a concern for local retail retailers that Amazon, you know, has eclipsed with its massive online, you know, shopping empire. Um, but wherever uh, it's coming from, uh, the insinuation that, um, you know, Amazon gets special treatment and should um, get, you know, charged more um doesn't really play out. And nevertheless, Amazon's shares have fallen as a result of Trump's attacks. In general, it has not seemed like companies fare all that well when Trump goes after them for, for one reason or another. Amazon has stayed quiet about that so far. And, and we'll ask our guest today if he has anything that, that he can say. I, I, I sort of doubt we'll get much from, from Al Lindsay, who runs software for Alexa, but we'll definitely ask him. And, you know, beyond um, dr drama with media companies this week and, and Trump's, um, you know, approval or disapproval of it, uh, I'm curious what's going on with Spotify. I love music. I listen to Spotify all the time. I feel bad about it because I don't know if they support artists well enough. But I'm hearing that they are uh, going public this week. Can you kind of break down what's going on there, Will? Yeah, Spotify is going public in a different way. Usually when we talk about companies going public, we're talking about an IPO, an initial public offering. And it's this whole complex dance that involves relationships between the company and investment banks on Wall Street. The banks underwrite the offering and and what they're trying to do is provide some stability for the share price. Among other services, they're trying to line up buyers. They're trying to make sure that there's the right amount of shares offered at a price that the market will bear. They want the shares to pop ideally a little bit on the IPO day so everybody feels good about it and feels like it's a good, it's a success, but they don't want them to pop too much because then the company's leaving uh, capital on the table that it could have raised. Spotify is eschewing all of that and it's doing something called a direct public listing. It is not uh, offering new shares. It is not working directly with Wall Street investment banks to, to sell them or to line up buyers or to offer a certain number. It's not doing the road show that companies usually do where they go on a, a months-long tour before the IPO trying to woo investors and explain the company. It's just saying, hey, we're public now and, and now, you can, now you can publicly trade our shares and go for it. Why is it doing it this way? That's a good question. I mean, Spotify, you get sort of a, a runic answer from their CEO, Daniel Eck. Uh, he says, you know, Spotify is not a normal company. We never have been. We don't believe in doing things the normal way. Um, one pragmatic reason that they don't need to do the IPO, or maybe maybe two good reasons they don't need to do the IPO, at least in their view. Number one is they don't actually need to raise more capital. Um, often an IPO, when you sell those, those new shares, you're trying to raise more money for the company to, to finance growth. Spotify doesn't feel it needs to do that at this juncture. Number two, 
when you're doing the roadshow and you're explaining the company, you know, for a lot of companies, their IPO is kind of their debut to the world. It's their coming out on the world business stage. They're trying to introduce themselves, explain what the heck they're all about. Everybody sort of knows what Spotify is all about by now. You know, they've been around quite a while. They're they're the biggest player in music streaming, although Apple is competing hotly with them right now. And so they just felt, hey, let's let's not do this big let's not do this big dance with the Wall Street investors. Um, they're also not locking up their own shares, which is something you usually do to make sure that early investors don't all dump their shares at once and then drive the price of the stock way down. Spotify doesn't seem too concerned about that. A lot of their early investors seem to really still believe in the company and they're holding their shares. So uh, Spotify, like uh, many tech companies, is uh, going public while it's not yet profitable. Um, they hope to become profitable eventually. And, uh, you know, I read in Recode today that one of the ways that they hope to do that is to take on the big record labels, not by signing artists themselves necessarily, but uh, but but by acting as kind of a direct distribution uh you know, with artists. So, so, so working with artists and smaller labels directly to distribute their music on Spotify, as opposed to working with artists through, uh, you know, through a major label. Right. Spotify is trying to cut out one of the big, historically the big middleman, which is the the record labels and Spotify is trying to become its own sort of middleman. It's an interesting case. I mean, on, on some level for me, it's very easy to root for Spotify. I personally love their service. Um, I, in some ways, they're kind of an underdog against Apple, which has barged in with Apple Music using its uh, the popularity of the iPhone and the iOS software to push Apple Music to all kinds of people who maybe hadn't gotten in early enough to streaming to be Spotify loyalists yet. Spotify has managed against the odds, I think, to retain a lot of its loyal listeners. It's even continued to grow despite the competition from Apple Music. But, uh, you know, you pointed out in the intro to this segment that there's also a little queasiness to rooting for Spotify because a lot of artists do feel that the cut that they get of streams when somebody listens to their song on Spotify is not enough to really sustain their livelihoods as musicians. It's certainly already changed the music industry. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if they are able to do it again, Um, but it's going to take a heavy lift. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, we'll have my interview with Amazon's Al Lindsay. is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our guest today is Al Lindsay, Vice President of Alexa Engine Software at Amazon. 
Al leads the team of engineers, product managers, and machine learning specialists behind Alexa, the artificially intelligent voice inside your Amazon Echo, Fire TV, and other Amazon devices. So in other words, he's basically in charge of building Amazon's version of the all-knowing Star Trek computer. He's been at Amazon since 2004, has led the Alexa team since 2011, which is something I want to ask him about since I wasn't aware Alexa was even an idea back in 2011. Al Lindsay, welcome to If Then. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Let's start with the basics. Pretend I know almost nothing about technology. You probably won't be too far from the truth. Explain to me in the simplest possible terms what happens when I ask my Amazon Echo, Alexa, what's the weather today? Sure. Uh, Well, the first thing that happens is the local um, software running on your device, which is um, able to recognize the wake word Alexa, um, detects that you said the word Alexa, wakes up, um, alerts you that it's now listening by lighting up the ring in blue, opens a connection to the cloud, and streams the rest of your requests to Alexa in the cloud. Um, so that's the, the first stage, which is understanding, hey, this is, you know, you're talking to me. Um, I need to do something with this, get it over to the cloud so that uh, Alexa can process it. Um, the next part is understanding the words that you said. So speech recognition or uh, what we call ASR stands for uh, um, automatic speech speech recognition. Um, that's understanding the words. So, um, you know, based off the language, trying to understand what the strings of potential words are you might have said. Um, and then we get those on over to a system we call natural language understanding, which then tries to make sense of the meaning of those words. So um, it might be able to understand that you said, um, what's the weather, um, those words. The fact that that translates to a request that needs to be routed to a piece of software that understands about weather um, and location and, and those types of things is the understanding layer. Um, and then I think about weather as an application. We call them skills. Um, um, skills are like applications and they handle your requests. So you get that request over to the, to the weather skill and it's able to figure out, um, and speak back to you using the text to speech engine, uh, the answer to your query. So what about the question of whether Alexa is quote, always listening end quote, you know, you hear that sometimes it's it, you have this device in your listening, your living room, it's listening to you all the time. If nothing else, it's listening to make sure that you're not saying the word Alexa, right? So what's happening is the software runs locally on the device itself, and it's listening locally for the word Alexa. So it's not, um, there's no connectivity or streaming at that time. Um, The sound is passing through the microphones, the engine's simply looking for that one pattern. Um, Do I see the pattern Alexa? If not, it's just passing through. Um, It's only when it, when we detect the, the phrase Alexa locally that we then wake up and say, Hey, this was meant for me. Now I need to take further action and actually start to listen and stream to the cloud. What about this, this fear that, that over time, uh, this device that you have in your living room, that, that, that is, you know, listening to you and analyzing what you say, that it'll just get to know so much about you that, that you should really be concerned about privacy. I mean, I've actually heard people say, oh, I, I would never get an, an Amazon Echo or I would never get a Google Home uh, because I'm just concerned about the privacy. I don't like the idea of inviting something into my living room that, that's going to be, you know, learning all this stuff about me. Right. Well, we take privacy really seriously at Amazon, um, and it's something that we thought deeply about right from the beginning. Um, so the whole product and, and the whole Alexa experience is designed around, um, you know, being thoughtful about privacy and customers, um, 
um, concerns about that. And so a lot of the a lot of the decisions that we've made to date and will continue to make are sort of centered around being transparent in what we do. Um, right from you know the experience I described, where you say the wake word, and then the blue ring lights up, and the blue ring is there to to reassure you um, by letting you know, like, hey, I think I heard my name. I've just opened a connection to the cloud so that I can try and follow up on what I heard after, um, and hopefully help you help you um, all the way through to you know the transparent way in which you can go into the app, see your entire history of utterances, um, delete them, or see see how Alexa interpreted them. Um, you know what? You know you said something, and Alexa thought you said play music. She got it wrong. You can see that right in your in your utterance history, and that was you know all about just being transparent and showing people, hey, look, here's what we're you know here's what Alexa's doing, um, and give you some control over it. And now go ahead and delete it, make it go away. Okay, got it. And and the stuff again, I think what you said is that when it's not when you haven't said the wake word Alexa, when you're just in your kitchen or in your living room with the device and it's listening for the word Alexa. It is, in a sense, listening to everything you say, but that stuff is not going to some remote server. That stuff is all staying on the device. Is there a way that we know that the device then disposes of it so it can't get, you know, hacked or somebody could get into your Echo and see all the stuff that it recorded when you weren't trying to talk to it? Sure. Uh, like, I think I used the phrase passes through because um, without getting too deep into the technology, it literally is inspecting the, the acoustic pattern. So it has no notion or sense of words or meaning, all of that's in the cloud, right? It's looking for a pattern that matches Alexa. Everything else is just, you know, sound waves passing through. Um, and they're not recording. They're like literally passing through a buffer and, and disappearing um, as they flow through with unre- without recognizing that pattern, right? It's not until you, you snap onto that pattern, you're like, oh, there's that pattern. That's Alexa. Now um, open a channel and take everything from this point forward and stream it to the cloud. Could there be a positive side to, to better understanding, though, some of the stuff that, that the Alexa in theory could pick up? I mean, you know, I, I know that, for instance, um, you know, if you if you do certain search terms in Google that that suggests you might be uh, considering an act of terrorism or that you might be considering suicide. I mean, Google will take certain steps that it wouldn't normally take to try to protect you and or others. Is that something that your team has had to think about? So not my team specifically, but I, I do believe we've done work with the National Crisis Center um, where we do get those uh, utterances where someone's expressed that, you know, they're struggling with something in their life. Um, we've carefully crafted responses to try to be helpful, direct them to places they can get help. Um, those are, you know, um, there definitely are instances of that in our, in our experience. What what's a privacy concern about voice AI, AI software and about uh, Alexa that you think is is valid and and that is something that worries you too and you actually are are you know trying to tackle it or it's sort of a challenge for your team? I don't really have one for uh, a response for that. Um, I, I I feel um, there isn't really anything that that falls into that category that that I'm aware of or, or focused on. A lot of people uh, recently became familiar with the, quote, creepy laugh that emanated from some Alexa devices where it just seemed to start start laughing randomly in people's living rooms. Obviously, people were freaked out by that. Um, I think we came to learn that that maybe it wasn't as creepy as people might have thought. I think it was, was it that it was, it, people were saying, it, it thought it heard the word laugh or the command Alexa laugh, but but it didn't actually hear that. Is that what was happening? Yeah, the shorter the utterance, the harder it is to get accurate ASR. I mean, if you say, 
you know, play supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, that's probably one of the most easiest words to snap to because nothing else sounds like it. But um, short uh, one-syllable commands, so laugh being one of them, are easily confusable with other things. So I think the combination of um, either an intended wake-up, but then a misunderstanding of the command, or uh, an unintended wake-up and a misunderstanding of whatever noise came after it, um, can result in a misrecognition. And um, in this case, it just happened to misrecognize to be laugh. And um, the editorial that we had, um, had had Alexa just laugh when you asked her to laugh. And so um, we've that, so that I think that that second part may, may have been jarring to people. And so now she'll say something along the lines of, sure, I can laugh and then laugh. So at least you have a little bit of context for, for what just happened. It's a hard job that you've set for yourself. I mean, I've, I've heard you describe the vision, again, as, as building a sort of Star Trek computer, you know, something that can answer any question uh, that you might have or, or help you out with whatever you might need. That would seem to suggest that you'd need something like what is sometimes called in the industry, uh, you know, general AI or, or hard AI, um, you know, an artificial intelligence that understands a, a lot about the world and is not just smart about one particular thing, like telling you the weather or ordering, ordering you a Domino's pizza. That said, you guys, your team seems to have taken a little bit of a piecemeal approach where you're not trying to build a an artificial intelligence genius from the ground up. You're trying to work on one problem at a time. And maybe if you figure out how to solve enough little problems over time, then eventually they could add up to something that can answer almost anything you'd ask. Is that a, is that a fair description of the approach you're taking to this problem? Well, let me turn it around the other way, because when I think about invention um, and these large changes in technology, um, the mental model I think uh, lay people tend to have is that there's, you know, the genius in the corner that has an epiphany and, and uh, you know, or falls in the bathtub and bumps their head and has a vision for the flux capacitor, thus making time travel possible. Um, but often the way it works is 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. Uh, it's just a lot of hard work. And so... Um, I don't. I don't know that it's necessarily incremental. I feel where Echo came into the market um, with solutions to far field speech recognition and highly accurate wake word technology um, and really good natural language understanding. All of those were really large leaps. I, I don't think of them as incremental. Um, some of those were just um, accepted in the science community to be intractable, unsolvable problems. Um, so I do feel we we try to point ourselves at the hardest problems first and go after those. Question I have to ask you, um, President Donald Trump uh, has been tweeting this week um, about Jeff Bezos and Amazon uh, taking advantage of the Postal Service. He seems to have sort of a, a vendetta against your company at the moment. I'm guessing that the real reason you came on this show is that you could fire back at, at President Trump, right? No. As it turns <laughs> no. out, that's not. I've been, uh, uh, I've been since, misled. Since, <laughs> since, I, since I agreed to come on the show before any of that happened, um, but I'm, I just have to say I'm not the person to... To answer those questions, so I'll defer you to my partner from the PR department. What about a more general question that, that sometimes people ask about uh, something like Alexa? I mean, it, it really is a magical experience that first time you get an echo in your home and you ask it a question and it just just answers you. I mean, it's amazing, you know, or you ask it to do something and it just does it. Um, in the long run, if Alexa becomes as successful as your team hopes and becomes this sort of entry point toward buying things, toward taking all sorts of online actions, toward learning about the world, 
What about the concern that this gives Amazon a, a lot of control over the flow of information, a lot of control over who buys what? I mean, if I ask to order a pizza through my Alexa, Amazon, in some sense, is getting to choose. I mean, who's the default pizza vendor for, for Alexa or which, you know, which companies get to partner with Amazon and what are the terms of that? I mean, is there any, is there any concern, is there any val validity to the concern that Amazon is inserting itself in, as a very powerful middleman in all kinds of, of transactions uh, between people and, and the online world? Well, I think when I think about Alexa, I think about a uh, user interface paradigm. You know, I think about technology growing up from command line interfaces um, through the 70s to the invention of the graphical user interface, the mouse, the keyboard. Um, then you had the, at the onset of the internet and browsers um, and search engines um, and then touch screens, you know, iPhones and, and uh, tablets. Um, so I think about the, the, the voice interfaces and natural evolution of those technology interfaces um, and only as a as a way to interact with um, technology, a platform, or a service that underlies it, um, more so than um, I think the way the way you've presented it. So I mean, Amazon today is a is, is an awesome um, retailing platform that allows other third party merchants to sell, just as we we uh, we sell products to our customers directly on our own platform. I think adding a, a voice capability to something like shopping just removes friction and makes things easier for customers, and it's a much more natural way to interface with technology. So in that way, I view it as a, um, as a positive advancement in the way that we interface with technology. And Yeah, one way of looking at it, uh, as you pointed out, is that in the past, people have had to learn to speak computer, and now you're sort of teaching the computer to speak our language so that it can, it can relate to us on our own terms. That's a good way to look at it. Um, what's the single biggest technical challenge to making Alexa as smart and as capable as you want it to be. You mentioned a couple of big advances that made the Amazon Echo possible. One of them was just the ability to hear somebody from across the room and isolate that sound above all the other ambient noise. Another was the natural language understanding to just, you know, the baseline ability to parse your words and figure out what it is you're saying. What in the next five years or 10 years constrains a device like Alexa? Because as wonderful and powerful as it is, you still, I mean, anybody who buys one, you quickly learn that it can't, you can't just ask it anything and have it answer. I mean, a lot of stuff it's going to say, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't understand your question or that sort of thing. Why is that and what might change that in the future? Um, I think context um, is an important challenge. So when we, um, when we converse with other humans, there's all kinds of non-verbal clues that you pick up on or you have a history with the other individual, things you've done over your lives. There's where you are, what you're doing at this moment. Um, and so when you say something to, to a friend like, hmm, I wonder what's up with that guy. Um, you know, that's as words, it's kind of hard to parse that and make sense of it uh, from a natural language understanding perspective. But you as a human have no problem at all understanding, you know, the, the, infer the inferences that are in that hidden in that question. Um, computers can't do this today. They, they struggle to uh, bring to bear um, all of the context and uh, nonverbal clues, environmental clues, what's going on in the world clues. Um, to be able to sort through those shortcuts and be able to get really get at the heart of what you meant. So it's more, you know, hear what I mean, not what I say. Um, and I think that's the biggest challenge facing um, uh, all of the AI 
uh, providers uh, in the next, as you said, five years is how do we how do we become more c- contextually aware? So in Alexa, we do it in the small. If you've got multiple devices nearby and you say stop, and the one that heard you, there's nothing going on on that device, but elsewhere in the room, there's another device that's playing some music. Um, that context is useful, and we can figure out, hey, we should stop the music on the other device or the video that's playing on your Fire TV. Um, these are nice smaller examples, but in the large, I think having context over you know, multiple interactions and understanding your environment and who's present and who's not present and where you are geographically or physically or things that you've um, sort of had affinity to in the past um, will allow uh, a more natural conversational interface for you with your artificial uh, agent um, where you won't feel um, like, you know, it's limited in what you can ask. Maybe you can ask anything. Maybe you can have a, a hypothetical conversation about current events in the world. Like, hey, what do you think about, you know, um, what's going on in the Middle East? Um, so I think those are that's kind of the meat of the challenge to get to the next level. Al Lindsay, thanks so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a short break, and then April will rejoin us for Don't Close My Tabs, a couple of the best stories we saw on the internet this week. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. It's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. April, what tab could you not close this week? So my story this week uh, is called I Can't Stop School Struggle with Vaping Explosion. It's about high school students who have taken to vaping. Uh, It's a story that I consider to be a tech story because I wrote about vape pens when I was on the gear desk at Wired. Um, And, uh, you know, according to this report, you know, in in just, you know, the Boulder school system in Colorado, it found that 45 percent of high school students had used e-cigarettes. 30% um, are current users. That's a massive amount um, of a report that came out last year also found that 11% of 12th graders, 8.5% of 10th graders, 3.5% of 8th graders had uh, vaped nicotine in the past 30 days, Um, right? High school seniors, they say uh, 24% reported vaping daily. I mean, something that I don't think is being reported enough is how vape pens have really made tobacco addiction incredibly accessible with a lot less of the kind of negative social baggage uh, that comes with smoking cigarettes um, and uh, to to young people. And it's something that I notice, you know, just seeing uh, teenagers in high school with vape pens all around my neighborhood. And it's been uh, on the up for a while. And uh, it was a fantastic report and something that we should all be very aware of. It was a really good story. It was in the New York Times and it came out on Monday. So, uh, you know, do take a second to read it. Um, I hope that uh, people continue to stay aware of this and stay concerned because the numbers of, of youth and, and, and teens who are uh, vaping regularly are just astronomical. I mean, they're very, very high.
Uh, Will, what tab could you not close this week? What, what stayed on your mind? My tab this week is a post that was actually written in June 2016. This was a post by an executive at Facebook named Andrew Bosworth. He's sort of an outsized personality there. BuzzFeed published the memo this past week. It was not meant for publication. It has embarrassed both its author and Facebook. And that is because the post made the argument that Facebook should pursue growth, that is, adding more and more users and having them spend more and more time on the social network, almost regardless of what the costs might be. He presented it as an ugly truth that, quote, we believe in connecting people so deeply that anything that allows us to connect more people more often is a de facto good. It is perhaps the only area where the metrics do tell the true story as far as we are concerned. And he went on to say that maybe connecting people will cost a life by exposing someone to bullies. Maybe someone dies in a terrorist attack coordinated on Facebook's tools. There could also be lots of upsides to connecting people, Bosworth said. But Facebook is going to do it no matter what, because that's just what Facebook does. Boz said after the post was published by BuzzFeed that he didn't even really believe that at the time. He was putting it forward as sort of a devil's advocate argument, something that Facebook needed to reckon with as it grew as a company. However, the takeaway for a lot of people has been, yeah, that's what Facebook has been doing. They've been prioritizing growth above all else, including their responsibilities to the world. That's why they're in the mess that they're in today. And Facebook is having a very hard time distancing itself from it, even though CEO Mark Zuckerberg has said, that's not really what we believe. And and everybody sort of disagreed with Boz's post. I think the public just isn't really buying it. If, if the public's aware of it, but I, I will say that it uh, definitely was a jarring post to read and definitely confirmed that Facebook does realize how powerful it is, right? Um, one thing that was just so interesting to me about, uh, you know, this memo that was leaked is that, you know, for so long, Facebook often you know, acts kind of ignorant about how powerful they are. I remember when Mark Zuckerberg said that, you know, it's laughable that that Facebook had influenced the election, you know, and, and, and I think he was referring to, you know, fake news as an issue. Um, but it seems, you know, in this post that Bosworth was saying that they do understand how powerful they are. All right, that's our show for the week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. And you can also email us your love and hate mail and whatever mail at ifthen at slate.com. You can follow me in April on Twitter as well. I'm at Will Arimus, and April is at April Azer. Thanks again to our guest, Al Lindsay. And if you like this show, help us spread the word, please. We'd really appreciate it if you left us a comment and a review and sent us flowers and pizza <laughs> and make checks payable to April Glazer or Will Arimus uh, on iTunes or wherever you listen. Thanks so much. Yeah, but ju- just the review and the comment Just the review, yeah. Don't send us, don't make checks payable. That was a huge joke. <laughs> If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is the wonderful Max Jacobs. Thanks to Don Aulis at A Room with a VU in Santa Barbara. Thanks to Robert Kirby at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. And thanks for additional help in Seattle from Julia Drockman. And thanks to the wonderful city of New Orleans for hosting me this week. We'll see all of y'all next week. Bye for now.